0: The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, um, I don't know about you, I've received a lot of great letters uh, over the years. For example, a note that I passed in elementary school to a girl that I thought was cute with the, the, the question, of course, the question on it, do you like me? Um, Yes or no, circle one, please. And I remember getting that letter back with the word yes circled. And not just the yes circled, but also a smiley face drawn next to the the yes that was circled. That was a very great uh, letter. My first job offer, uh, my senior year of college, came as a letter complete with a salary offer in it. That letter and my acceptance of that shaped the next eight years or so of my life. Um, About nine years ago, um, I got another letter from that same employer at a time when my family's personal finances were were pretty tight in the early days of planting Two Pillars Church. I got a letter from my prior employer stating that they would be sending a check of about $2,000 from a pension plan that unbeknownst to me I'd been contributing to while uh, working there, and that was a very timely and great letter. Um, or even two weeks ago, I received a note of encouragement from, from one of you just saying, hey, thank you for being one of our pastors. Um, it was a great letter, and those things go a long way. So I'm sure you've received a, a lot of letters in, in your life as well, or maybe emails, or texts, or Snapchats, whatever, whatever age we're living in now, um, as we've lost the appreciation for a letter in our society. But this morning, all right, th- this morning, I want to introduce you to the, the greatest letter ever written. Uh, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. This morning, we are beginning a series in Romans, and what we're committing to right now, Lord willing, is Romans 1 through 4 um, th- this fall, and that should lead us up to Advent, okay? But, but Romans, if I could summarize the, what the book, or rather the letter of Romans is all about, Romans is all about the gospel and the glory of God. In fact, that's our subtitle for this series, The Gospel of God. And the glory of God. Now, Romans is deep, Romans is, is rich, it is chuck full of really, really important doctrine. But, but what I want to emphasize this morning is that Romans wasn't written as a theological treatise. Okay, this isn't Paul's swing at a systematic theology, even though Romans is essential to how we understand theology systematically. No, it was written as a letter. Paul wrote it around the year A.D. 57 to the church in Rome, a group of Gentile and and Jewish Christians whom he had never met but planned to do so soon. And although he had never met them, he knew what they needed most was to hear about the gospel and the glory of God. Now take note, these are Christians, this is a church in Rome, and what he knows that they need to hear most is the gospel and the glory of God. Romans isn't a a letter uh, merely for the head. It's a letter for the heart. He knows that these people don't just need to hear about the gospel. They need to experience the gospel. They don't just need to hear about the glory of God. They need to experience the glory of God. The point of the letter isn't merely to study it and get some information but to worship through it and be utterly transformed by it. Now, Romans is, is so important and so consequential that every spiritual giant, every significant theologian has something to say about its magnificence. Uh, let me give you a taste of that. John Chrysostom, one of the great preachers of the early church in the second half of the fourth century, said that Romans was so remarkable that he had it read to him twice a week. He wanted to listen to it over and over and internalize its message William Tyndale, a 16th century English scholar who was one of the first to translate the entire Bible into English, he called Romans the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament, and most pure euangelion, that is to say, glad tidings, or good news, or gospel, and also a light and way unto the whole of Scripture. And he said, the more it is studied, the easier it is. The more it is chewed, the pleasanter It is. I'm not sure if pleasanter is still a word. It was back then. Uh, Martin Luther, one of the key leaders of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, father of the Lutheran Church, he said, This epistle is the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel, which indeed deserves that a Christian should not only know it word for word by heart, but deal with it daily as the daily bread of the soul, for it can never be read or considered too much or too well, And the more it is handled, the more delightful it becomes and the better it tastes. John Calvin, 16th century reformer, said, If we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to the most profound treasures of Scripture. I'm belaboring this point on purpose, all right? We go on. David, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great London preacher in the second half of the 20th century, one of my favorites, he said, There's a, a sense in which we can say quite truthfully that the epistle to the Romans has possibly played a more important and more crucial part in the history of the church than any other single book in the whole Bible. John Stott, English Anglican pastor and theologian who passed away a decade ago, said that Paul's letter to the Romans is a kind of Christian manifesto and that it remains a timeless manifesto, a manifesto of freedom through Jesus Christ. It's the fullest, plainest, grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. C.H. Dodd, a Welsh scholar in the 20th century, said Romans is the great work of Christian, it's the first great work of Christian theology. He says, I would go even further, it's not only the first, but also the greatest work of Christian theology, and that no one in 2,000 years has written anything to match it. Bruce Metzger. A biblical scholar in the late 20th century and early 21st called Romans the constitution of universal Christianity. And Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart say this letter is arguably the most influential book in Christian history, perhaps in the history of Western civilization. <laughs> now, again, I belabor that point for a reason. To help us to see that as we stand on the shoulders of these these giants, these brilliant men of faith, imperfect men, counted perfect, not by history or by their life, but simply by the precious blood of Jesus, as, as we stand on their shoulders, you can see that it is not an overstatement to say that the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans is the greatest letter ever written. Now next week we're going to start working through Romans We'll tackle squarely the first seven verses. And what what we're going to do with our series is is largely kind of follow the section breaks that are most likely in your copy of the scripture, uh, one section at a time for the most part. But this morning, all I want to do is show you what Romans has done, or more accurately, what God has done by his spirit through the letter to the Romans. And in so doing, I want to build expectant hope in you for what he might do in you and in our church, and in the world. What it has done and what it might do, that's the goal uh, for this morning. To show you what it has done, what God has done by His Spirit through Paul's letter to the Romans, I want to begin in the 4th century in St. Augustine of Hippo. Now, Augustine was born in the year 354. Um, He was from North Africa. He was brilliant. He was a philosopher and a teacher of, of literature and rhetoric. His mother, Monica, was a faithful Christian who prayed fervently for the conversion of her wayward son, and yet Augustine, um, he himself, he sought out truth, just he didn't seek it out in the scriptures. He didn't seek it out in church. He sought it out just about everywhere else. He doubted the faith of his mother. The early part of his life was filled with immorality. He was enslaved to his sexual passions, including fathering a child outside of marriage, And in the summer of 386 A.D., when he was 32 years old, he writes about this in his book, Confessions. But at the age of 32, struggling with doubts and sexual enslavement, he went out into a garden seeking solitude. And he writes, the tumult of my heart took me out into the garden where no one could interfere with the burning struggle within myself in which I was engaged I was twisting and turning in my chains. I threw myself down somehow under a certain fig tree and let my tears flow freely. Suddenly I heard a voice from the nearby house chanting as if it might be a boy or a girl saying and repeating over and over again, pick up and read. Pick up and read. I interpreted solely as a divine command to me to open the book and read the first chapter I might find so I hurried back to the place where I put down the book of Romans. I seized it. Opened it and in silence read the first passage on which my eye lit. That passage was Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. Turn to that in your copy of the scripture. I want you to see what Augustine saw. Romans 13. It's page 948 in the Pew Bible. Romans 13, verse 14. This is uh, verses 13 and 14. This is what Augustine read. Let us walk properly... As in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the, fa- for the flesh to gratify its desires. After reading this, Augustine continues, he says, I neither wished nor needed to read further. At once, with the last words of this sentence, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires, he says, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. And what did God do by his spirit, through his word? He converted a man who had grown up around Christianity, but who had severe doubts about the faith of his mother. He was a man whose heart was flooded with anxiety and who was genuinely wrestling for faith. And God saved him. He freed a man anxious with doubts about Christianity and enslaved to his sexual passions. And this man went on to be a massive figure in the Christian church. So much so that Catholics and Protestants claim him still today. He became a theological giant a church father, and a key figure in church history. One historical theologian says of Augustine that he played a crucial role in the Donatist and Pelagian controversy. That's just fancy words saying that he battled heresy on behalf of the church. Contributed significantly to the theological doctrine of the Trinity. Wrote the first autobiography, that was his Confessions. Articulated a philosophy of history from a Christian perspective, that was his book, The City of God and explained many theological issues such as the sacraments, original sin, grace, and predestination. How did it all start? With Romans. Next, as we consider what God has done by His Spirit through Romans, we turn to Martin Luther. Now, Luther was not a perfect man, he could be quite vulgar. Um, And we would especially denounce some of his writings near the end of his life, and yet we cannot deny how God worked through this imperfect man in the history of the church. Luther, before becoming one of the eminent leaders in the Protestant Reformation, was a Catholic monk. And he struggled mightily with what it meant to be accepted by God. In fact, he became a monk because he thought that that was the surest way to gain heaven. That's why he went into the ministry. At one point he wrote, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. As his biographer notes, Luther probed every resource of contemporary Catholicism for assuaging the anguish of a spirit alienated by God. But nothing pacified his tormented conscience. Nothing, that is, until God opened up Romans 117 to him. Turn to Romans 117 um, in your copy of the word. We'll look at this more in a few weeks, but I, I want us to see it now as it pertains to what God did in, in Luther and then through him. Romans 117, we We'll begin reading actually in verse 16. Megan read this earlier, but he says, "Paul says, "For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, that is in the gospel." The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, if you're like, well, What is that? What is going on there? We'll get we'll get more into that. But listen, listen to Luther articulate his wrestling with this text. He says, I, I had greatly longed to understand Paul's letter to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean. That righteousness whereby God is righteous and acts righteously in punishing the unrighteous. See, Luther was enamored by his own sinfulness. He tried very hard to stop sinning and he couldn't. Even though being a, a monk, and he was, he was, always felt this weight of God that was against him. He had a very active sense of conviction. And this idea of the righteousness of God was always something that he interpreted as God righteously coming against him in his sin. Night and day I pondered it, he says, until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Counts us right before him. Right, by, by faith. and In other words, for Luther, at that moment, it clicked. He goes on and says, Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. You know, Luther is credited with rediscovering, so to say, the doctrine of justification. We'll be talking about that a lot through Romans. It was a doctrine that Augustine understood so well, but had gotten lost in sort of the maze of Catholicism of his day. A day in which the common people didn't have the scriptures translated into their own language. They weren't able to read it for themselves. They were being taught the word of God in a distorted fashion. It was a day where indulgences were being sold by the Catholic Church, along with a promise to those who purchased them that they were essentially buying forgiveness for their sins. And the Reformation, Luther in particular, changed all that. What did God do by His Spirit through His Word with Luther? He settled a troubled conscience, right? One that was always worrying whether or not it was truly right before God. Am I good, am I not good? Am I good before Him, am I, am I in or am I out? And he did it by granting a true understanding of how we are counted right before God to begin with. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it literally changed the world. Next, we consider John Wesley, one of the fathers of the Wesleyan movement of churches, which eventually developed into the Methodist movement. Wesley, like Luther, wrestled with this idea of being justified before God. And in 1735, John Wesley and his brother Charles sailed for Georgia, here in America. They came as chaplains to the early settlers and and missionaries to the Native Americans. They very much looked the part of Christians at the time. But after just two years, they returned to England, horribly discouraged, filled with disillusion of the faith, questioning even their own faith. On their way home, they encountered some Moravians, which is a sect within Christianity. And they, these Moravians attempted to teach John Wesley what it meant to be justified by grace through faith, not by works. See, the, the, the Wesleys were, were very big on works early on and discipline. That continued to be an emphasis for them, but even so much so early on, to do the right things, to please God. And Wesley heard this teaching about justification by grace through faith, and he grappled with it in his mind, but he, he couldn't make it settle in his heart. He understood it like intellectually. He knew the words. He, he could rehearse them back to you. But it hadn't set home in his heart. He would have said, I had not felt it for myself. And on May 24, 1738, he attended a Moravian meeting in Aldersgate Street, London. And in his journal, he, he actually records that he went to the meeting very unwillingly. He was discouraged, discouraged, He was disillusioned, and as it happened in that meeting, someone was reading the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. Here's how Wesley recorded in his journal what happened that night. He said uh, about a quarter before nine, while he was describing, listen to this, the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, he says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Wesley, of course, would go on and be a key figure when it was known as the Wesleyan revival that swept through England in the first great awakening and transformed a nation. What did God do by his spirit through Romans He took an intellectual faith and made it a real faith. He took the doctrine of of justification from something that, that Wesley understood in his head and he put it in his heart. And as a result, God worked a spiritual revival throughout England. Two more. First is Karl Barth. Now, we might not agree doctrinally with everything that Karl Barth held to, but God did some incredible things through Barth in the mid-20th century. Prior to World War I, Barth came under the influence of many of the leading liberal scholars of the day. And he started to share their sort of utopic dream of human progress and social change. But then, through the carnage of the war and reflections on the book of Romans his illusions in liberal optimism were absolutely shattered. One writer describes it this way, saying that Bart had come to see that the kingdom of God was not a religious brand of socialism, achieved by human prowess, but a radical new beginning initiated by God. In his, in his commentaries on Romans, I'm, I'm quoting now from a Pentecostal theologian, French Arrington here. He says, in his commentaries, Bart proposed, proposed the idea that the Christian faith was, listen to this, was usually blended with the present day natural, national culture. But the result of such blending was that the values of faith and values of the world were often viewed by the church as being the same. And so this blending of the gospel and the world's values reinforced the self-confidence of modern people, but it failed to remind them that they were under divine judgment and called to repentance. He, speaking of Bar, wanted humankind to understand what God thought about them and the way that God had come to them. God's word had become flesh in Jesus Christ. Christianity was not a human religion, but divine revelation. Not the word of man, but the word of God. What did God do by his spirit through Romans with Bart? In short, he devastated liberal Christianity. One more is John Stott, the English Anglican pastor and theologian of the second half of the 20th century and into the 21st. He's written a fabulous. A little commentary on the book of Romans, and in his preface from 1994, he writes this. He says, I confess that ever since I became a Christian 56 years ago, I've enjoyed what would be termed a love-hate relationship with Romans. (laughs) Some of you might have a love-hate relationship with the book of Romans. And he says that because of its joyful, painful personal challenges. It began soon after my conversion with chapter 6 and my longing to experience that death to sin which it seemed to promise. He says, I toyed for many years with the fantasy that Christians are supposed to be as insensitive to sin as a corpse is to external stimuli. It was Paul's devastating exposure of universal human sin and guilt in Romans 118 through 320 that rescued me from that kind of superficial evangelism which is preoccupied only with people's felt needs. If you've read the first three chapters of Romans, Romans 1, 18 through 3, 20 in particular, you know what he's talking about. It'll be a heavy few weeks in our trek here in Romans, joyful and painful, and yet it gets to the heart of it all. John Stott, he became noted as a leader of the worldwide evangelical movement in the 20th century and one of the principal authors of the Lausanne Covenant, which forms a portion of our doctrinal statement. What did God do by his spirit through Romans with John Stott? He reframed the conversation of evangelism from a surface level of felt needs to the deepest level of need with respect to our soul for our sins to be forgiven, for us to be made right before God. Listen, there's so many others that we could mention, right? Like John Bunyan, who was so roused as he studied the great themes of Romans in the Bedfordshire Jail that he wrote what became the most significant works of religious and and theological allegory in English literature, The Pilgrim's Progress. Rather than keep going, I I want to quote one more theologian for you, F.F. Bruce, who points out in his commentary on Romans, after acknowledging so many of the other giants like we just did, that very ordinary men and women have been affected by it too. Indeed, he says, there is no saying what may happen when people begin to study the letter to the Romans. So let those who have read thus far be prepared for the consequences of reading farther. You have been warned, he says, (laughs) right? Well, nobody ever warned me. Um, See, my own story is bound up pretty deeply in the book of Romans as well. After becoming a Christian in 2002, my friend Jed Molinex kind of took me under his wing. He was a youth pastor at Mid Rivers Christian Church in St. Peter's, Missouri at that time. And Jed gave me, my friend Jed gave me a copy of John Piper's book, Desiring God. I'm not sure I'd ever really read a book before that, I was like 22, and, and I really didn't read a whole lot. I was more of a TV guy, if you know what I'm saying. And uh, But at that time, um, started reading this book. It took me forever. And also did a little Google search. I don't even know if Google was around yet then. And did a little search on the, on the webs there and stumbled upon John Piper's sermons. And putting sermons on the internet in 2002, believe it or not, was a little bit of a, a newish thing that was happening. Um, John Piper was the pastor of... Bethlehem Baptist Church in downtown Minneapolis. He was preaching at that time through the book of Romans. He was somewhere in Romans 9, I believe, at that time. I went back and started at the beginning. It turns out that Piper started preaching through the book of Romans on April 26, 1998. So he's four years in. It's not going to take us that long, rest assured. Uh, But he started preaching through the book of Romans the day after my 18th birthday. And I had this 40-minute commute each way in St. Louis. I started listening to Piper preach through the book of Romans, 224 sermons worth. And it changed my life. See, when I became a Christian at 22, I, I didn't know I didn't know anything. You know, I, I knew that I was sinful. Nobody had to prove that to me. It was just like, yeah, okay, I can look around my life, I can tell, right? I am definitely sinful. And I knew that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, You know, so it was just like, hey, you know, raise your hand if you're sinful. Yes, that's that's definitely me. Um, Raise your hand if you want Jesus to die on the cross for your sins, so that you don't spend eternity in hell. Yes, please. That's that would also be me. I would take some of that. That's that's what I had. I knew I was sinful. I believed in Jesus. I believe that He died and raised from the grave. Uh, I trusted Him for salvation. I got baptized. I remember thinking, kind of after baptism, maybe immediately after, and then shortly maybe afterwards, I remember thinking, like, do we, do we need to do that again? You know, like, I'm not 100% sure that that's, that took. You know, do we, is, is it possible that you need to do it twice or something like that? Um, because I continued to struggle with sin, and very specific ones. Coming out of my years as in, in college, I was essentially addicted to pornography. Um, I was a partier in, in college, and so I... You know, that was my life, and especially when we would come back from St. Louis and spend time with old college friends, it was I'd just go out and get hammered. That was what we did. And uh, I'd go back to church, and I'd, I'd just feel like a failure. You know, I'd, just, I'd, I'd go back into church, tr- I'd feel like a fraud. I, I would feel like a, a poser, and, and I, I wanted to change, but I didn't seem to be able to do it on my own. There was one word that could describe how I felt during that season of my life, it was condemned. Condemned. I looked the part. I was trying to play the part, but I couldn't do the part. I knew better, you know, I shouldn't be living that way. And it was right around that time that I started listening to these sermons on Romans. Now, this is pre-smartphone, right? So I had this janky little MP3 player that I bought from Walmart that would hold like three of them at a time. It's so, like midweek, I have to reload it. It was so annoying, right? But you didn't even know it was annoying because that's all you had. You thought it was awesome. But I'm working with this janky little MP3 player and I start listening to these sermons by Piper preaching through Romans and I start to learn about sin. I knew something about sin. I didn't know the extent of sin. I didn't know the extent of not just my depravity, but but all depravity. I started to learn more about that. started to learn a little bit more about justification. That was a weird word for me when I first encountered it, to be justified before God, be made right before him, counted right before him in a definitive way. Started learning about sanctification and how that works and how it, how it works with justification, all things that we'll get into. Started learning about assurance of salvation and that once you are counted as, as right before God, you're justified, God's now doing this work of sanctification in you, but because of the justification, you can have assurance before God, eternal security with the Lord. Most of those concepts were pretty foggy to me as I was learning them. I was starting to wrestle with them in my head, trying to get them straightened out in my head. But if I'm real honest, like Wesley, they hadn't really taken hold of my heart. And then one day, one morning, I'm driving to work on I-370 on the north side of St. Charles, uh, St. Charles County, St. Charles, Missouri. Driving down I-370 with my janky MP3 playing and Piper's preaching on Romans 8, chapter 1. And I can, I can still hear his voice today can still hear him screaming that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and man, whatever it was that the Spirit of God was doing in me, I just started bawling in my tr- same truck I'm still driving, just bawling in my truck, driving down I-370. I worked in the defense industry, by the way, so when I pull up to a little guard shack to show them my badge that morning, this is post-9-11, they probably think I'm Al-Qaeda or something like that. I was like, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I swear I work here. And I pull into the little spot, and I just did some business with God, praying, Lord, what have you done? Totally changed my life. God changed my life by His Spirit, through His Word, as it was preached, through this person named John Piper, who I'd never met, never have. Now, was I saved before that? Well, I think so. Romans actually helped clear that up too. Chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's pretty clear, and that was really helpful. But the gospel really took hold, the penny dropped, so to say, when the Spirit of the living God awakened me to the reality that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I began to learn how, by the Spirit, to put to death the deeds of the body. You know, that's Romans eight thirteen. How to begin to walk in, in righteousness. Righteousness not perfectly, not without stumbling, but in the stumbling, falling back on that doctrine that I have been saved by grace through faith and not my works, and that God was at work sanctifying me, even through the mess, even through the ups and the downs, the sin and the repentance, and to begin to really, truly trust in the gospel for both justification that one time making right before God, and sanctification, the progressive work that he does in us, as well as promised glorification, where one day, when Christ returns, we'll live perfectly with him with no more stumbling, no more sin at all. The bulk of that work in me, God has done by his spirit, through his word, in this, the greatest letter ever written. What I want all of us, what I want all of this to sort of build in you is expectant hope for for what he might do in you or in our church or even in our world by his spirit, through his word, by the same great letter that he's been using and doing this through for 2,000 years. I mean, as we get into this, there's no saying what might happen. Maybe you resonate with Augustine and you grew up in the church, but you've got all kinds of doubts. Or, like Augustine, perhaps you're enslaved to sexual passions. God can and God will work through Romans to shine a light of relief from all anxieties and doubts that flood your heart. He can and He will dispel the shadows of doubt. He can and will free you from your enslavement to disordered passions. It's what he does. Maybe you resonate with Luther, and you never quite felt like you measure up before God. You try, and you try, you you try to do all the right Christianly things, but you're still tormented by this false idea that the righteousness of God is somehow against you. He can set you free from that. He can and will justify you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from your works. Maybe you've heard all about justification. You're like, oh great, and how, how many sermons are we going to have to hear on that? Maybe you've heard all about it, heard all about the book of Romans, and you know all the truths intellectually. But like Wesley, none of it really feels like it's true for you. It feels like you're missing it. Oh sure, you know, great for others. Others seem to get it. But for whatever reason, it doesn't seem like it's really taken hold of your heart. Listen, God can and God will warm your heart like He did Wesley's. He can and He will give you an assurance that Christ has taken away your sins, even yours, and has saved you from the law of sin and death. Listen, He does it all the time. Maybe Bart's the one that you resonate with and you've grown disillusioned with the world's solutions to problems, disillusioned or perhaps on guard against a version of Christianity that seems to be blended with present-day culture. And listen, if you're, if you're not disillusioned by that, my prayer is that through the book of Romans you would become that, disillusioned by a version of Christianity that's blended together with the values of culture. The secularizing of Christianity, which puts forth essentially a Christless Christianity, deluding Christianity, creating another gospel, which is no gospel at all. A gospel of socialism or a gospel of moralistic, therapeutic deism, which elevates the psychologicalized self over dying to self and surrendering to Christ as Lord. God can, God will. Go to battle against modern-day liberal forms of Christianity through the book of Romans. And in so doing, he will reset you back to the bedrock of his unchanging word. What about John Stott, the man who saw through the surface-level Christianity that was becoming popular in his day and popular in ours? A Christianity that focuses on felt needs over the deepest needs. And therefore never reaches the deepest needs, which is truly the source of change with respect to how we understand our felt needs. Perhaps that's who you resonate with. Perhaps you came in here today with a a lot of felt needs yourself, unaware of your deepest need. Or maybe you're maybe you're just fed up with the light beer version of Christianity that only ever focuses on felt needs and you're ready for something deeper, for something stronger. God can, God will, go deeper than your felt needs. The strength and power of his word can and will get into the deepest places of your heart and affect real, deep change, meeting you at your point of deepest need, strengthening you to face all the things that come at you as felt needs in the world. Maybe you're here today and you're like I was in St. Louis in 03, feeling overwhelmed with condemnation. Listen, God can, God will awaken you to the glorious truth that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Maybe you're here and God has already done all of that in you already. And what he's going to do through Romans in you is strengthen you strengthen you in all of these truths and maybe even help you to serve as a vehicle through whom he might do it in the lives of others in this church. You're part of a body, by the way. And the Lord may want to take some of the truths that he's already solidified and and built firmly in you and work through you by his spirit, through his word, in the lives of others in your gospel community as they grapple with some of these things, perhaps for the very first time. God loves to do that. And he will. Through the Apostles' letter to the Romans, a letter that teaches us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It teaches us that God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We haven't even talked about sufferings yet. We rejoice in our sufferings. Romans helps us to understand that we know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We've been united with him in his death and shall certainly be united with him in his resurrection. And we can be sure that neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, by your spirit, through your word, do work in us Do work in us this fall as we begin into Romans. We trust that you already are. Do work, Lord, in our church, changing, transforming us, making truths come home in our hearts in new and greater ways. Glorify Jesus here. Glorify yourself by your Spirit through your word. Do work, Lord, by your Spirit through your word. We pray even for revival. Revival which always begins in the hearts of your people. And so we pray, do work. We pray again, do work in us, Lord. pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.